0: Amen. As you're being seated, find your Bible. We'll be in John chapter 21. You know, it's amazing how quickly life can change directions. You're going one way, and the next thing you know, everything's going a different direction. Uh, for the disciples, they had been on an absolute roller coaster ride. They had left their lives, they had followed Jesus for three and a half years, and whenever they came into the city of Jerusalem, it, it was like the culmination of everything that they were looking for, the triumphant entry, and then Jesus goes to the temple, and he casts out the money changers, and then you have this week of incredible preaching, and then out of nowhere, everything begins to change direction. One of their own, Judas, betrays Jesus. Now, think about your circle of friends and how you would feel if you were betrayed from one of your own circle of friends. That's what had happened to them. And then Jesus is betrayed, he's he's crucified, he he dies on Golgotha, he's in the tomb, they go through the lowest of lows whenever their, their, their Lord has been killed, and then they have the incredible adrenaline rush of the resurrection, and Jesus begins to appear to them. I mean, this has just been an absolutely wild ride for the apostles. But now what? Jesus isn't living with them anymore. He's kind of appearing to them and then leaving. The Passover festival is coming to an end. What should the disciples do? So they decide that it's time to go home to Galilee and return to their life. And so in chapter 21 and verse 2, the Bible says, Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathanael from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Well, We're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Now you'll remember that most of the disciples were fishermen. So whenever Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing, it doesn't have the same connotation as it might have if uh, Charles over here says, I'm going fishing, because Charles, you're not a professional fisherman, are you? So, but it, it basically, Peter was saying, hey, I'm, I'm going back to work. I'm going to go out, go back on the lake. And the other disciples were like, well, yeah, us too. Let's get back to it. Time to return to our lives, time to return to our jobs. And these professional fishermen, they go out on the Sea of Galilee, really a, a big lake, and they fish all night and they catch nothing. The other day, a group of our men went fishing, and, and they went up to Broken Bow, Oklahoma. I think we have a picture of the group here. Uh, let's see. And there they are. They were up in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, and you can see them fishing there, and they met Bigfoot while they were there. And uh, one of the guys here, uh, Romo, up in the right corner, Robert Montgomery, he is a good friend of mine, and, and Robert loves fishing. In fact, he was one of the organizers of the whole trip. Harold, I understand you caught some fish. I understand a lot of other guys caught some fish. How many did Robert catch? He didn't catch any. That's right. He's the expert fisherman, and they're they're up there at the lake, and he doesn't catch any. It's always frustrating whenever you know what you're doing. You're out fishing. You're there all night long, and you don't catch a single thing. Well, when daybreak came, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know that it's Jesus. So the sun's coming up, and they're 100, maybe 200 yards off the shore, and they see there on the beach this, this man. And they're not, not sure who it is. Well, as you piece together the story from later on in the Scriptures, you, you find that the man on the shore was catching fish. So here they are. They've been in the boat all night haven't caught anything and there's this guy up there on the shore who just just keeps pulling fish out of the lake and cooking them so you're a little bit jealous of this stranger well then verse 5 Jesus calls to them you don't have men you don't have any fish do you now how do you think that went over you've been in a boat all day long all night long You hadn't caught anything. Some guy up on the shoreline, catching fish left and right, and then he calls out to you. Hey, Shane, you don't have any fish, do you? Probably didn't go over too well. Well, verse, I'm sorry, before I get there, they respond, no. And I'm glad that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire John to write the rest of the words that they probably said at that time. No. No. We don't have any fish. What's it to you? Verse 6. Now the guy on the shore starts giving them fishing advice. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. Well, don't have anything to lose. (laughs) We've been fishing all night, haven't caught anything. This guy's standing on the shore. He's catching something, and so they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Don't worry, I'll get it. It's okay. So, the large number of fish that they had caught in in the the net. Now, my mind flashes back to Luke chapter 5. That's whenever Jesus first called Peter. And we have almost an identical miracle take place. The very first time that Jesus came to Peter and said, follow me. He told them after a long day of not catching anything, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And they argued with them a little bit. Really, we've been fishing all day and we're supposed to cast our nets on the other side of the boat. But the same miracle took place when they obeyed. The, the nets were full. This time, notice that they're not sure who it is on the shoreline, but they just do what the guy says. And their nets are once again full. So therefore, the disciple. The one Jesus loved. Now, who's the disciple that Jesus loved? Do you remember who that is? John, the writer John. That's right. Very good. John, you got that one right there. So John, the the disciple who Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. What gave that away? The fact that your nets are full of fish? Yeah, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him for, for he was stripped and he plunged into the sea. So Simon Peter, they're, they're 100 yards out from shore. John says, that's Jesus up on the shoreline. Simon Peter, you got to love him. He's so impulsive. He just jumps in the lake and starts swimming to the shore. Anybody know any impulsive folks like that? I mean, he just jumps in the, in the lake and, and he's off. Peter, it, it always strikes me as funny that he was a fisherman. Because fishermen are supposed to be patient, Right? And he's just so impulsive. I mean, he was probably about ready to pull out the dynamite to catch the fish by this time. <laughs> but he jumps in. He lives big. Uh, Peter is one of those guys who brings hope to all parents. If you have that rambunctious, <laughs> impulsive child, hey God can use that child. It's OK. Keep working with him. Verse eight, but since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. So the other disciples decide, we're not going to swim, we're just going to take the boat in. They may have even passed Peter on the way into the lake. (laughs) And they get up to the shore, and they're dragging the net full of fish. Uh, Hey, thanks a lot, Peter. Hey, we got this. Hey, don't, don't worry about us. You know, we're okay. We're just here handling the fish. You enjoy your swim there, buddy. And when they get out on land, they see a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. So they get out of the boat. They see the guy that was on the shoreline, Jesus. And there Jesus has made a charcoal fire and there's fish lying on it. Now remember also that Peter was warming himself around a charcoal fire on the night that he betrayed Jesus. So there's some parallelism there. Now Jesus is going to restore him. And I also want you to notice a few Completely unspiritual things here in the story. The first is this. It's okay to have fish and chips for breakfast. So if Jesus can serve fish and chips for breakfast, you can eat fish and chips for breakfast. So, So the Lord has given you permission. Now secondly, to all the grill masters in the room. Anybody think you really know how to be a grill master? Anybody like to grill out back? Anybody? Nobody likes to grill out back? You all use George Foreman grills. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate somebody who's a real man in the crowd who's willing to grill out back, you know. But uh, to all the grill masters in the room, notice that charcoal is always superior to propane. Okay, Propane may have Hank Hill on its side. Charcoal has Jesus on its side, right? <laughs> Jesus used a charcoal fire right here. Now, thirdly, remember that fishing is godly. Because evidently, Jesus fished. So the next time you're going on a fishing trip, just remember it's a godly thing to do because that's what Jesus did. So WWJD, you know, go fishing. Have a good time. Just go ahead and neglect your wife and kids and go fishing, all right? Kidding, all right? Verse 10, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and 53 of them. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now here's the scene as I I envision it. You have Simon Peter, and he's laying on the shore, probably gasping for air, because we know from the race to the empty tomb that he and John had, that Peter had gotten a little bit pear-shaped and was not exactly in great physical condition. So after a 100-yard swim, he was probably lying on the shore in pretty bad shape. The other disciples are dragging the nets up out of the boat onto the shoreline, and they probably do what fishermen do, start counting. How many fish do we catch? I don't know. Let's start counting. So they probably started counting. Well, Jesus interrupts the counting scene and says, let's eat, boys. So Simon Peter gets up and tries to make himself useful, and he hauls in the net. He was probably also a very strong guy, Simon Peter was. And they find out that they have caught 153 fish. You say, Lash, why 153? What's the meaning behind 153? Well, the reason why they caught 153 fish is because they didn't catch 154 okay? So I I don't think there's any symbolism behind the meaning of how many fish they caught. I think it's it's just a detail in the story, and sometimes those little details really show the authenticity that this was not just something that was just made up, but this is a real story. So in verse 12, Jesus tells the disciples, come, let's have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. Now, verse 13 kind of reminds me of the Lord's Supper in the upper room. Remember, at the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he gives them bread and wine, and he actually instigates what we call one of the ordinances of the church, and I'm not arguing in any way that fish and bread are supposed to be one of the ordinances of the church, Uh, but, but, but... the wine represented Jesus' blood and how he would ultimately give his life for sinners, how he was going to die on the cross and lay down his life for the sinners. And, and here he gives them fish and bread. And I think about that fish and how fishing was in the blood of the apostles. These guys had grown up on the lake. Since they were a little bitty, they had fished. It was their life. When they didn't know what to do next, wondered what what's next for us in life, they returned to fishing because that had been their life. They had given up everything in the past to follow Jesus. They had gone through such an adventure. But what now? And Jesus began serving them the fish and the bread. Now, this is the third time, verse 14 says, that Jesus appeared to the disciples After he was raised from the dead, now remember in Matthew twenty-eight and verse seven, the angels had told the people that Jesus would go before you into Galilee. This is actually the first time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples in Galilee, so it was a a fulfillment of what the angels had said in verse in chapter twenty-eight of Matthew. But it was also going to be much more than just a nice breakfast. Jesus wasn't there just to make small talk. He wasn't there just to feed them some fish. He also had some spiritual business that he needed to take care of. And so in verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And We're not exactly sure what he was pointing to whenever he said these. He could have been pointing to the other disciples. He could have been pointing to the fish. But he asked Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. Now let's get a little bit technical here because it will really help you understand the story. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and then it was translated into English. The word that we have in English, love, there's several words to describe love in the New Testament. You have a word called agapeo, you have phileo, you have another one, stergo and eros. Stergo and eros actually do not appear in the Greek New Testament, but agapeo and phileo appear quite a bit. Whenever Jesus asked Peter here, do you love me? The Greek word is agapeo. It's a sacrificial, godly sort of love. Whenever you read that description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's a description of agape love. It's an all-in, willing to lay down your life, a complete, total, self-sacrificing type love. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says, do you agapeo me? Do you love me with all of your being? Are you willing to lay down your life for me? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you, but he uses the word phileo. It's a softer form of love. It's almost like, uh, yes, Lord, I'm your friend. Yes, Lord, I'm fond of you. Yes, Lord, I'm here. But it, it doesn't carry that deep, powerful, I'm all in. I'll die for you. I'll give everything of myself for you. Yes, Lord, I'll phileo, I phileo you. Well, then Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. And then a second time, the scene repeats itself. He asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. Same scenario again. Do you agape me? Yes, Lord, I do love you. I'm your friend. I'm fond of you. Jesus says to him, well then, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me he softens the language here he doesn't ask Peter this third time are you all in are you willing to die do you have that ultimate love for me he says basically Simon son of John do you love me with this friendship type love and Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time do you love me Peter's Peter's distraught he's softened the challenge do you love me? Are, are you my friend? Will, will you follow me? And, and Peter, distraught, I imagine he felt like, I, I don't measure up. I'm not where I should be. All the memories of his betrayal had to be haunting him. Interesting how he betrayed Jesus three times, and Jesus now asked him three times, Do you love me? Are you willing to follow me? Will you feed my sheep? Peter, distressed by his own behavior, by his own, by his own lacking, responds to Jesus with his head hung low. Lord, you know everything. I can't hide anything from you, Lord. You know me. You, you know what's happened. You know that I phileo you. You know that I'm fond of this is where I am. I know I should be here, but this is where I am. And Jesus again tells him, okay, feed my sheep. Peter, you should be all in by now. You followed Jesus for three and a half years. You heard him teach. You saw the miracles. You know who he is. You've seen the resurrected Christ. You should be all in by now, Peter Jesus says, I'll meet you where you are. Get up. Dry yourself off. You're not a fisherman anymore, Peter. You're a missionary. Your life is not to go out and catch fish. Your life is to go out and plant churches. Your life is to feed my sheep. Your life is to be a shepherd. Peter, get up. I'm meeting you where you are. You're not where you're supposed to be, but I've got plans for you. And then Jesus tells him in verse 18, I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. What's Jesus saying here? It seems kind of cryptic. Verse 19, he said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after this, he told him, follow me. All right, Peter, you're not where you're supposed to be today, but follow me. Go feed my sheep, and I'm going to grow you. I'm going to mature you, and one day you're going to be all in. Up in the upper room, you spouted off about how you were willing to lay down your life for me, and then when the soldiers came in Gethsemane, you ran for your life. Whenever you stood there in the courtyard, you betrayed me in order to protect your life. Yeah, I do know all things, and I know exactly where you are today, but I want you to follow me. I want you to feed my sheep, and one day you are going to lay down your life for me. One day you are going to die for me. Today, Peter, follow me. I'm going to make a shepherd out of you. I'm going to make a man of God out of you. Now what are our takeaways from the story? Well, four things I want to make sure that you take away from this story. The first is this. It's time to quit doing things your way and instead start doing things God's way. Question for you. Do you ever struggle with playing the control role? Do you ever try to take that control role and say, "Okay, God, Uh, If it's going to be, it's up to me, and I've got to take control of the ship. I've got to take control of the script, and I'm going to play the control role. I know I struggle with that, and I suspect that most of you do as well. Well, the disciples struggled with that as well. They were trying to figure out their next steps. They were trying to take control of the situation. And Jesus calls out to them in the midst of their desperation and says, Hey, men, how's the fishing going? Have you caught anything? And I think sometimes God has to call out to us and say, Hey, how's it going? How's it going with you playing the control role? How are you enjoying those sleepless nights? How are you enjoying that stress bubbling up inside you all the time? How are you enjoying trying to control things that you have no control over? How's it working for you? Is it making you happy? Is it accomplishing everything you ever wanted to accomplish? Control issues don't take us to where we want to be in life. Control issues always leave, leave us lacking. And control issues, whenever we struggle with playing that control role, I think we need to realize that they always overflow into our spiritual lives. Let me make sure I say that again. Control issues always overflow into our spiritual lives. The reason for that is because they tap in to the root causes for sin. Control issues always tap in to my own selfishness and pride. In my pride, I think I can play the role of God. Uh, Part of repentance, part of coming to Christ, believing in Him, putting our faith in Him, our need for a Savior is our acknowledgement that we're not totally self-sufficient, that we can't do it all on our own. Yet whenever we take that control role, that pride begins to swell up within us. Secondly, it taps into idolatry. Now, when we talk about idolatry, we usually think of making statues and worshiping those statues. But remember, and I've I've talked about this several times, there's another more subtle form of idolatry. And that is whenever we take God and we try to fashion him into the image that we think he should be. We create a God in our mind of who God is and what he's supposed to be like instead of the revealed God that we see in Scripture. And so in the course of our life, we have this image of this is who God is supposed to be and this is what he's supposed to do. And we worship that God and that God is one that we often want to control. You ever played the control role in your praying? God, you need to do this. God, this is what I think and God, you need to join me in what I think right here. What we're often doing is we're fashioning God into something that we think he should be so that instead of us serving him, he's serving us. It's time to stop playing the control role and let God have control. Secondly, take this away. God knows where you are today. Now, Peter should have been. Peter should have been further along. He should have been at that all-in point. Instead, he was at the friendship. Fondness point. Aren't you glad that God doesn't meet us where we should be? He meets us where we are. Aren't you glad at that? Hey, God meets us where we are, and he takes us to where we should be. If you're taking notes, make sure you catch that. God meets us where we are, and he takes us to where we should be. Do you know how to become a more Spiritually minded person, how do you become a more spiritually mature person? Well, for a lot of us, we immediately run towards new behaviors. If I'm going to become a more spiritually mature person, I've got to start reading the Bible more, going to church more, being a part of the life group, doing all these things. Colossians, though, teaches us to set our minds on things which are above, in other words. Draw near to Christ? What are those things in your life that really stir your affections and stir your heart towards God? Where are those places where you find God really speaking to you and pouring into your life, and you find yourself feeling the presence of God in your life? Go there. Set your mind on things which are above, and let God begin doing His work within you. Let the Holy Spirit begin directing your thoughts and and filling your heart with grace and filling your heart with the things of God. And then Colossians says, once you've set your mind on things that are above and God is really doing his work in you, then you are prepared to go to war with the works of the flesh. Paul actually uses in the passage, combat terms. You're you're ready to to fight and and go to war with the things of this world that that distract you and keep you away from God. If you want to grow spiritually, start right where you are and draw near to God. Spend time with God. Spend time uh, letting Him stir your heart and, and fill your spirit. Let Him do His work within you and He will empower you to become that new person. He will empower you to see the world differently, and then you will be equipped to do those things, those disciplines of the spiritual life. There's nothing wrong with prayer and life group and giving and worshiping. I encourage you to do all those things, but they become active and strong when God's power is flowing in your life. Thirdly, don't wait until you are where you should be to follow God. I find this happens sometimes in conversations. People think to themselves, I know that I should be growing as a Christian. I know that I need to be more in. I I need to be further along. But there's still these things in my life that I need to take care of. And once I take care of those things, then I'll really start getting serious about my Christian life. So there's always something just causing you not to be where you're supposed to be in your walk with God. And you think, I'll take care of it one day. Well, let me challenge you. Don't wait until you get everything taken care of to start growing in your relationship with God. The time for you to start growing is now. Start now. There'll always be some excuse. There'll always be something that stands in your way. The best time to start is now. And you find this example in so many different areas of life. Two years ago, I was in the best physical shape that I've been in since high school. I mean, I was running, I was lifting weights, I was in good shape. Then my wife came in and said, I'm having a baby. And one pregnancy and one newborn year later, I'm not in as good a shape anymore. And I'm thinking all the time, you know, I can make all sorts of excuses why why I can't eat right and can't get out and exercise and do the things that you need. There's always something standing in the way. But if you're ever really going to to take care of your physical shape, you've just got to get started. You've got to start doing something. And the same thing is true in our spiritual life. We're always, you know, I'll serve whenever I get to this point, or I'll get more active at the church once the kids get to this point, or there's always something. Maybe I'll join the church whenever I see, and there's always something just kind of keeping us from really jumping in and getting involved. But start now. But I'm not where I need to be. There's, there's still some sin in my life. There's still areas where I'm struggling to, to grow. I don't know much of the Bible. Just start now. Start serving Him. Give your life to Him. Start spending time with Him. Follow Him. The fourth takeaway. When we follow Him, it is unbelievable what God can do for us and through us. When you just get up and start following Him, it is unbelievable what He can do for us and through us. What did He do for the disciples? He filled their nets. Hey, you guys caught anything? No. Cast your net on the other side. Okay. Cast the net on the other side. Jesus fills up their nets. Sometimes whenever you just get up and start doing something, You start following God. It's amazing some of the blessings that He pours into your life. He starts filling your nets. and You've been thinking to yourself, man, I have been working forever at this. And God just did something that I could never do. Yeah, He's God. He kind of does that sort of thing. Follow Him. He'll pour blessings into your life that, that you never envisioned. And He'll also mature you and grow you and use you in ways that you can never imagine, when you're just willing to get up and follow him. Hey, Simon Peter, he had blown it. He had betrayed Jesus. He had contradicted his word. Jesus, I'll die for you. I don't even know the man. He had blown it. But Jesus says, hey, Peter, follow me. I know you're not where you're supposed to be, but follow me. I'll bless you, I'll, I'll mature you, I'll grow you, I'll turn you in to a great man of God. And Peter did. He followed Jesus. And just a few days later, Peter preached one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the message of the gospel there in Jerusalem. And 3,000 repent of their sin and turn to Christ that day. And from that sermon, through God's power, the movement known as the church began to take root. And that movement began to spread throughout the Middle East, throughout North Africa, throughout Asia, that movement eventually crossed the ocean, that movement spread throughout the United States, that movement even reached Murphy, Texas. One of the reasons you are here today is because there was a movement that began with the empty tomb that flowed through the message of the Apostle Peter, and the church began to take root and ignite all over the world because there was an old fisherman laying on the beach who was willing to get up and follow Jesus, and Jesus took that guy where he was. He wasn't where he was supposed to be, but Jesus took him where he was, and he made a great man out of him, and God can do the same thing with you. If you'll just follow him, let him do his work within you. It is amazing what God can do for you, and God can do through you. So the question is, are you following him? Are you following him? Would you stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. For some of you today may need to be that first step of faith. You you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'll be here at the front row. If I can talk with you, pray with you, help you in any way, it's, it's always my honor to do so. During this time of commitment, this song, you can sing with the band. If you feel led to pray, then pray. If there are some thoughts that you need to write out, just sit and write those thoughts out. However God is speaking to you, my challenge to you is just to follow Him and let Him do His work within you. Our heads are bowed. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit. What's He saying to you today? What do you feel the still, small voice of God saying? How's he working in your life? Listen, I know it's it's easy to get caught up in all the distractions of life. Kids have to get here and there, and school's coming to an end, and there's deadlines at work, games to go to, so many different things to entertain us in life. And it's easy to get distracted and not hear the still, small voice of God. What is God saying to you today? Will you follow Him? But, Lash, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. There's still other areas. Will you follow Him? Will you let Him do His work in your heart? Bless you and mature you. Use you in ways that you may never have envisioned for His glory. Father, thank you so much for this church. Lord, may this church know how much I love them, but beyond that, may they know how much you love them. Father, I pray that we might be a group of people that are passionately following you. Lord, none of us are perfect and none of us are where we should be. None of us have arrived in your in your home yet. But Father, you are you're growing us and you're doing your work within us. So Lord, help us to follow you, to let you be God, and us to be your servants. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.